0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up on this hour of The Federal Drive, why was a Space Force Guardian aboard a Coast Guard Arctic cutter? Also, some worrisome signs for security clearance processing times. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. First up, though, the federal improper payment rate ticked up in fiscal 2023. The Office of Management and Budget says the slight increase to 5.43% was mainly due to documentation problems. Deidre Harrison is the deputy controller in the Office of Management and Budget. She tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about how the Office of Federal Financial Management plans to continue to reduce the improper payment rate in 2024 and beyond
1: we are laser, laser focused on continuing to ensure the effective stewardship of taxpayer funds. As I'm sure you know, there have been a lot of new pieces of legislation that have passed in the last couple of years. And with that, the creation of a large number of new programs, as well as this expansion of other programs, in order to really ensure that effective stewardship, we were required to kind of rethink how we were going to approach implementation. And with that oversight, The really short version is that our new approach is all about bringing in our oversight partners at the front end. Uh, We need to make sure that this year in particular, we are institutionalizing all of those processes that we've been putting in place the last couple of years. We can get into more details, but probably one of the most exciting new things we are doing are these meetings that we call joint review meetings, where we are bringing together agency program teams, their leadership, their IGs, their inspector generals. We are bringing together the White House and uh, our O&B partners to really think about oversight and performance on the front end together. We are also making sure that agencies have the tools they need to get their jobs done, that they are sharing best practices, they're identifying tools that work and they are sharing those tools with each other. We don't want agencies having to solve these problems on their own. And in order to do that, we have stood up a new payment integrity and fraud symposium where we bring together program staff and leadership to collaborate and learn in real time. So this isn't just about being talked to, it's about problem solving together at the same time. So that's number one. Number two, we've been really, really hard at work here at ONB rewriting what we call our uniform grants guidance. Uh, There is a very long document that articulates all of the administrative requirements for federal financial assistance and we have rewritten it from top to bottom. We went out to the public a couple of months ago asking for comments about areas we could look at. We got a lot of comments. There were a lot of really really great ideas and we have implemented many many of them. In uh not too distant future, I hope to be sharing a draft for public comments and really look forward to continued engagement. And over the next uh, year, we want to get to final, as well as make sure that we are working with agencies on implementing those changes as quickly as possible. Third, I would highlight that since the passage of the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, we have been working hard with our agency partners on thinking about how to improve project-level reporting. Today, uh, you can go to USA Spending and you can see a lot of the reporting that is required to provide oversight, but all of that reporting is at the award level. So you might imagine a state gets an award for a block grant, and then that award gets divvied up to a bunch of projects. Today, you're not required to report at the project level. And so we have been working with our agency partners on the programs and the bipartisan infrastructure law to up that reporting to the project level. That has been a big body of work. We have a Done a pilot, we are through our initial pilot stages, and we are rolling that out uh, for all of the programs that have construction projects in the bipartisan infrastructure law, and this year uh, are on track to share that information publicly. The last one I will highlight, which is certainly uh, by no means the least important and probably the only priority we could talk about for the entire time we are together because it covers so many of them. We issued M2319, which is our memorandum that we send out to departments and agencies which established the Council on Federal Financial Assistance. This is a big deal. That council is going to be a critical component in many of those items I just uh, mentioned. But really, at the end of the day, they will help us to ensure that agencies have the tools they need to deliver programs in an efficient, effective, and equitable manner while also making sure that we are reducing administrative burden on applicants and recipients.
2: Let's start with the beginning of the, of, the, of number one, as you talk about ensuring stewardship and, and looking at implementation. The joint review meetings, you said you've been through that. How many have you had? What are they like? Give me a sense of what you're hoping to come from those as these get going. We've heard over the years uh, you know, different reviews that, that IT does, but maybe this is, haven't heard the same thing as for financial management.
1: These meetings, I'm not allowed to say I have a favorite of anything really, but they are hands down my favorite meetings that I get to host uh, for sure. They started shortly after passage of the American Rescue Plan. So back in March of 2021, quite frankly, what was happening was we here at we were hearing one set of facts from program staff The White House might be hearing something similar but slightly different on the implementation team. We were then coordinating with the oversight community to understand some of the government-wide problems and hearing a third similar but slightly different version of what was going on. And we realized the only way to get to the bottom of the problem was to have everyone in one virtual room at the same time. And so that was the creation of these meetings. They started with uh, one program, and I have since then participated in more than 60 of them. We started again with the American Rescue Plan, and then we institutionalized it as part of an MMO and have since then implemented them for the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Inflation and Reduction Act, and CHIPS, which I'm not going to try to spell out. But what do these meetings cover? Uh, we here in my team in OMB, creates a template of a series of the kinds of questions we want to explore together. So think about all of those things you just said that I didn't mention. What are your internal controls? How do you view risk for this particular program? When you think about reporting, what is it gonna look like? When are we gonna get it? What are the kinds of oversight reports you are looking to ask your recipients to provide? We are also asking big questions like, what are the legislative requirements for this program? How are they different from before? They are meant to be prompts. They are meant to be a conversation. And so we work with the program team to work through those questions. And if there are areas that would benefit from hearing from the IG, from the White House, from the agency leadership, we highlight those in the meeting and they really are a discussion. It's not about preclearance. It's not about not having an audit on the program. It's about learning from the expertise that exists inside your agency and across the government. And I will tell you, It works. It happens live. I have seen agencies think about the decisions they are making and how they're going to implement their program in a different way at the end of the hour. These meetings, because of all of the high-level officials that participate, tend to be at the end of the day, often uh, at the time when people don't have places to go afterwards except home. So many of them go long, and we continue the discussion. And I will tell you, the best meetings are just that. People are coming off mute, asking questions. I've had agencies pull up spreadsheets live, showing their IG in the meeting, like, oh, well, this is the data we're looking at and sharing information with each other. That is when they are at their best, when they really are a discussion.
2: How are you collecting the best practices, the lessons learned? How are you ensuring that whatever, whenever you do one of these meetings, you can share that information to others on the CFO Council and more broadly to other program folks? Because- you know, one of the big challenges you mentioned was obviously payment integrity, uh, improper payments. And we've seen, you know, during the pandemic, the skyrocketing of improper payments. It's now come back down. But there's a big push from this administration and from the agencies, plus from the oversight community on reducing fraud. What, what else can we do to reduce fraud? And I imagine part of these review meetings also address that, that challenge.
1: Absolutely. And that sharing is happening in a number of ways, both formal and informal, right? So we have folks that are taking notes during those conversations, and I am very actively ensuring that as the head of the CFO Council, I am sharing with that group. I also, as soon as my new grants council stands up, we will be making sure that there is a mechanism to get back to that council to share the lessons learned there. But I would also say that Fraud and Payment Integrity symp- Symposium that I highlighted at the top is another area where we are making sure the information is flowing in both directions. So we are often hearing from one program or one situation, and then we're saying that worked, or GAO has identified a process that is, you know, the gold standard. We are then taking it to the fraud symposium and having hands-on practical ways for agencies to engage and really take some of those best practices and think about how their program should be applying it. I will also say uh, another important body of work that is underway right right now is with the Joint Financial Management um, Initiative with GAO, Treasury, ONB, and OPM. We are a joint cooperative that work together on a number of cross-cutting issues, and we as a group have committed to prioritizing the prevention of fraud, waste, and abuse, and we are working on a multi-year plan where we will leverage all of our uh, best practices across our organizations to help agencies tackle that really important issue.
2: The the priority you you listed fourth, not your fourth priority, but the priority you listed fourth, which is the new council on financial federal financial assistance. You had given us a little bit of a heads up during the EGA meeting, and then you got you all at OMB released the policy. Where is it today in terms of standing up? Have you had the first meeting or when is the first meeting? And what are some of those initial Priority items, agenda items for the council.
1: One of the things that this council is going to do is create a group of agency leaders that can speak on behalf of their the entirety of their agency and the way they think about federal financial assistance. Today, I will tell you, I do not know before these individuals were identified who to go to in every instance, right? It was one of the problems we were trying to solve. I knew who were running sp- uh, big programs or who was doing certain kinds of work, but I didn't know who had the authority to speak on behalf of some agencies. Well, that all has changed. Each agency has identified their senior accountable official. I am happy to announce that Dale Bell at HHS will be the co-chair representing HHS. In the memo, we designated HHS as the first co-chair, and they have chosen Dale Bell, who runs their Office of Grants. And Dale and I right now, actually I've had a few of them today, are meeting with all of our newly appointed uh, senior accountable officials to hear from them what they want to accomplish from this council and uh, really, really look forward to getting the ground running, but most importantly, getting it right. There are a number of councils that the federal government has stood up, and we need to learn the lessons from those councils, and we are taking that seriously. We want to make sure we are setting up this council for future success by creating the right processes up front. And making sure that we are communicating not only appropriately internal to government, but also external. And getting that right is going to take us a little bit of time, but I have no doubt that we have found the right people to do that.
2: Generally speaking, the senior accountable officials fall into the grant making category, meaning people who are head of grants or more
1: CFOs or. I have been very surprised. Some of them come from the procurement shops. There are a number of agencies where their senior accountable officials sit inside the procurement arm because they think about financial assistance and procurement in much the same way. There are other agencies where the CFO council, the CFO shop, is where they are tapping into. One of the first products I hope this council will help me create is that cheat sheet of how does this work at every single agency? And uh what are the programs that they are supporting and how um, do they function internally? Because I think that'll be a really helpful uh, artifact to have and be able to share with folks.
2: As we talk about uh, grants management and federal financial assistance, one of the things that I want to make sure we hit upon is the GREAT Act. I think at the AGA event, you mentioned potentially new guidance coming. Uh, or updated guidance around the Great Act. What can you tell us about that? I know it's all predecisional until it's out, so give me a little sense of, of what should agencies be on the lookout for.
1: Sure. So I can't get into what's going to be in the guidance or when it's going to happen, but I can tell you that we are learning a lot from that project-level reporting project I told you about with the bipartisan infrastructure law. One of the reasons why we decided to go down that route with the bipartisan infrastructure law is we needed to know a lot more about what agencies today can and should be collecting before we could take the next round at GRADE Act. So GRADE Act really requires agencies to work together to ask recipients the same questions in the same way. So that way, maybe there's a future where a recipient doesn't have to report the same information 10 times to 10 different programs in slightly different, albeit very annoying ways. And so in order to get that right, we need to have the right set of information that every agency is asking. It's not gonna always be perfect. There's not gonna be great. There's not gonna be 100% alignment, but there should be a core. These are the 10 elements that every program, if it's this type of program should be collecting. But more important to that than that, this is the way that agencies should be asking the question or data standards, right? When you ask for an address, that address should be no more than 100 characters, or the zip code needs to be zip code plus four. We made a lot of progress on that previously on the GREAT Act, but we didn't finish that work. Um, Our last guidance that went out identified the data elements that should be at the core, but we didn't identify exactly how agencies should be answering those questions in all the same way. That's the next round of data at Great Act, right? It's making sure that we are saying as a government, when we ask you for your address, we are going to ask for it the same way, every way, every time, um, and making sure that all of our forms are following that. So we're hard at work. Uh, we're working with HHS on that. And again, uh, that grants council is really going to help us because there are some that are uh, not going to be easy to come up with one uh, standard because agencies have been asking those questions in very different ways for a really long time.
2: I appreciate you got in front of my question of when and what should we look out for. If you, Even if you told me the fall or the winter, I know OMB time means summer, spring. So these things take a while. So obviously a lot of folks looking at it because I think folks don't understand that the government spends more on grants than they actually do on procurement. We think procurement's the biggest one, but I think it's, it's well over a trillion dollars in grants if I, if I remember that correctly.
1: Yeah. So when we look, especially at last year and the last couple of years before that, we have eclipsed the $1 trillion mark in federal financial assistance. I will tell you, um, a lot of people not only think that procurement is a bigger portion of the pie, but they also inappropriately think that grants are just like procurement and should be exactly equal. And we should have a FAR, which is the federal acquisition regulation. And while I agree, we can and should be finding ways where we can overlap and be the same. Federal financial assistance is fundamentally different from from procurement. Each program has its own underlying statutory authorities, and that is meaningful, and we need to make sure that we are not overcorrecting either. So what this council is going to help us do is identify exactly how much we overlap and find those similarities, but I wouldn't want anyone to think that what this is going to do is create the equivalent of where they've been able to land in the procurement space.
2: I think it's important also to connect some dots around the OFFM and the work you do. You work very closely with the Office of the Chief Information Officer, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, and probably some of the, uh, obviously, the budget side of of OMB. Maybe discuss how all these initiatives also fit into some of the work either being done through OFPP, through OCIO, or just more generally with OMB. How do those big management offices help push that ball up the hill?
1: A little bit about my background. Uh, Before I became the deputy controller, I was on the budget team in ONB, And so when I came to OFFM, it was a priority for me to make sure that we were partnering closely with our budget colleagues and ensuring that the management team was speaking as one voice. I am happy to report we couldn't be more synced on the management team. While I haven't been here for more than a few years, I can assure you I am meeting with my management team colleagues all of the time. Just earlier today on one of the topics you raised earlier, Jason, we were all in a room talking about shared services and across our councils and our areas where we needed to go and how we needed to get that done. That conversation couldn't have happened if at the leadership level across our offices we weren't uh, completely aligned. Another really important area. Uh, to highlight is the Made in America office, our newest partner on the management team who has joined us during uh, this administration. I work so closely with Livia and her team Uh, As you may know, they just updated their guidance in the uniform guidance. That was in lockstep together. Uh, While it might be OFFM's guidance, it was absolutely in partnership with our Maine America office. So there are so many initiatives I can add. And so if we could have this whole conversation just about cross-cutting initiatives, that we are working tightly uh, across the management teams on for sure.
2: Share services was not necessarily one of the priorities you mentioned in the front end. I know that there's a big push for the CUSMOs, my favorite acronym in government. Anything you can share about where this is heading next? I know it's been a big priority for OMB over the last decade plus to modernize federal financial management systems. Uh, Anything that you should look out for over the next year?
1: Sure. are making sure that we are providing the federal enterprise with the tools they need once that can be shared is always going to be a priority of every OFFM leader, as well as my colleagues across the board. We don't want agencies paying multiple times for the same thing. Um, I will tell you that in the spaces where I have most uh, insight, which would be the QSMO, and I love that you pronounced that correctly. Most people don't. They say Quizmo. There's all sorts of versions. Um, (laughs) That is the QSMO at Treasury, as well as the grants management QSMO. And in both of those areas, we have a lot coming down the pike. Treasury is the furthest along of all of the marketplaces uh, by far. And I have no doubt that over the next year, they will continue to add more suppliers. With the grants QSMO, we are really gonna be looking to them to lead on this great act work, as well as working with the standards leads to make sure that they have a marketplace that is ready to make available solutions that meet those standards. So there's a lot of exciting work coming down Uh, the pike. And I didn't mention it as a singular priority because it really cuts across all of the initiatives that we are working on and it supports each of them uh, in a different way.
0: Deidre Harrison is the deputy controller in the Office of Management and Budget. To hear her full conversation with Jason Miller, go to federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still ahead on Federal News Network, some worrisome signs for security clearance processing times. That's next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. Back on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. The federal government's made huge progress in reducing security clearance processing times over the last several years, but there are some early signs of backsliding. As Federal News Network reported last week, the latest data shows top-secret investigations took an average of 115 days in the fourth quarter of fiscal 2023, up from 84 days during the same period last year. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, and she's here with us now to talk more about it. And Stephanie, on the, the trusted workforce security clearance issues, you know, I, I guess the good news is here, if there is any, that security clearances for secret level clearances are, are not taking that big of a hit yet, but it is really noticeable on the timeliness of those top secret clearances. I wonder if you and your member companies are starting to see any of those effects in, in real time as these timelines go up and up. I mean, Is it starting to affect people's ability to onboard new talent, things like that?
3: Well, it is an area where our member companies are looking very closely at the timelines. And so when they make offers, for example, to potential candidates, that they have that in mind, do they hold a security clearance? Obviously, there's a premium being paid for those candidates. But what's realistic in in terms of when they can put somebody, a new recruit onto a a contract? And these lengthening timelines is really a deterrent for, for recruitment
0: as far as the the explanations that we're getting from the administration on the reasons for for the timeline do those make sense to you they they seem to be indicating that they think this is a temporary problem
3: i do wonder about the temporary nature of this and i would because i highlight where we are in the trusted workforce 2.0 process and that is to say equip is a thing of the past they're moving to this eapp situation where some of the agencies have a of waiver that they don't have to go to eapp right away that said um, I think some of the increased number of applications they got or initiations for, for clearances um, came because people wanted to file under Equip, and not have to go in through a, a new way of initiating clearances. That said, I am not sure I quite understand the government's uh, rationale that the length of time for clearances is because closing older and complex cases or some it outages um those are somewhat unpredictable and i'm not sure i understand where they're coming from on that front
0: yeah i guess a large part of it depends on whether they've fixed the it outages so that those don't <laughs> recur in the future
3: exactly and you can never you know the the very nature of an it outage is that you try to to avoid them at all costs and i'm not sure how they might avoid them in the future that said um you know if you go back five years the, there was such a high number of of clearances in the backlog it was I think in FY18 it was 725,000 you know clearances in the process and they're trying to keep a steady state of 200,000 so an uptick to 225 is is not unreasonable I just we are tracking very closely and contractors in particular what the trends are so that when they do onboard individuals they have a realistic expectation of when they can put that person on a contract. Let's talk
0: a bit about AI, a lot going on in that space, a new executive order from President Biden, OMB also has a request for comments out on a forthcoming memo that they're going to be releasing here. And I know you've been doing some work to, to survey your members about their concerns and what they think the government should, should do. Talk with us a bit about what you're hearing back from those members.
3: Jared, you're exactly right. Our our members are noticing that AI is sort of the word of the the day, the week, the months, the year. Everyone is talking about AI, whether it's our legislative colleagues up on the hill or executive branch folks. And and so when the executive order came out, it had some, you know hundreds of tasks assigned to 50 different agencies, et cetera. Uh, we're looking very closely at how these agencies are each um, taking to heart and, and planning on implementing elements of the executive order for which they have responsibility. Uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology in particular with their AI framework. That said, You know, there is a lot of room for dialogue in this space and our members in particular are looking for ways to engage like the OMB request for comments on this memo. Um, You know, broad brush. Are they heading in the right direction? What are the ethical and legal implications of use of AI? And Jared, at this point, I'd like to highlight the difference between AI, which a lot of us have been talking about for years, and generative AI, which is, you know, when you think of Isaac Asimov and iRobot and things like that, you you, you look at, you know, what is the the implication of application of generative AI? And I think that's an area where our members are really wondering what, what's the future here.
0: And I think you came away with some specific recommendations for the White House as they, as they think through, through these issues. You want to talk about those a bit?
3: Of course, I appreciate the opportunity. We at PSC have a very active AI working group and we are putting out a, a series of white papers. One of them just was released a couple of weeks ago and we sent it to the agencies, we sent it to the Hill and it was specifically on the use of artificial intelligence and generative artificial intelligence in federal contracting. One of the areas that contractors is, are uh, closely watching is the area of use of AI in market research in a contracting officers applying it potentially to the evaluation of proposals, et cetera. So we came up with six different recommendations for how um, the government should think about AI in this space. Um, looking for opportunities to learn and experiment, obviously, because this is a, a new system um, or a new tool that contracting officers might want, want to use. And of course, the perennial design security into AI, um, how can they protect information, et cetera, on the contracting officer level. But first and foremost, one of our recommendations talks about standardizing AI terminology and using best practices. And we're suggesting that, as I mentioned earlier, um, market research is a really great place to start using AI in federal contracting to, to see what's in the realm of the possible. And it's a relatively low risk, as opposed to jumping to AI in proposal evaluation, which we think is is uh, needs to be carefully thought through before that becomes a reality
0: it's hard enough for human beings to perfectly follow the far i can't imagine what happens when chat bt (laughs) chat gpt starts getting in there it would be uh it would be a, a bit of a minefield it seems like at this point
3: I I think so. I think, you know, we what the phrase we use in our paper is to experiment with AI tools in market research, because that's what it is. And if you go to my father, he often says they call it practicing law and practicing medicine for a reason. No one's got it quite right yet. We can say that we practice AI because no one's got it quite right yet. And as we move forward, I think um the low-hanging fruit or the the easiest way to to see if it's going okay in, in federal procurement is in market research before
0: you go I wanted to talk a bit about the appropriations process such as such as it is um we we continue to not see very many hopeful signs that the house and senator can converge on anything if anything they seem to be getting further apart as we move toward these latest deadlines what are you seeing out there what are you watching for
3: there are a few things that we're watching for. And thank you, Jared, for it's always about appropriations in DC, right? So uh, where are we in the process? And months ago, several people were saying, you know, buckle up for 18 months of continuing resolution, because this is a difficult situation that we're facing. With, uh, you know, newly installed Speaker Johnson, he has a vision of, of getting individual bills across the finish line. Um, There are a couple that are we're watching very closely and that are uh, tremendous sticking points in this process, and I'll bring your attention to two of them. One is the agriculture bill and one is the transportation housing urban development bill um, right now that the House is looking at cutting ag uh, about 30% from its FY23 levels and THUD, as we'll call it, um, about 25% this the Senate seems to think that, you know, the the um, FY23 level is just about right. Um, so. This is an area where if those bills can't get across the finish line, um, I wonder whether the White House, and we're looking for signs about how the president feels about this, would he allow um, other bills to be passed, but not the ones that are hugely contentious um, for full year appropriations? So I had a discussion with folks who wanted to talk about um, could the defense bill and the DHS bills get across the finish line when ag and THUD were being held up? Um, I'm not sure the White House would agree to that.
0: One of the thing I, things I keep coming back to here is considering that the CRs have extended so far into FY 2024, if there is a cut of any significant magnitude, what are the implications of that happening midway through the fiscal year when agencies only have, you know, a relatively short time to deal with a sudden drop off in funding? That almost feels like a 2013 sequestration situation, not quite, but it would be a pretty sudden change.
3: Yeah, for those agencies that are, as, as I mentioned, are tremendously contentious, that is a significant cut. I mean, they're currently operating under levels um, that are significantly higher than what a full-year appropriations with a 25% or a 30% cut would would signify. And of course, we always know that those cuts come out of contracts. It's not like they're going to lay off civilians or military personnel or make them take a pay cut. I'm not advocating for that by by any means, but I would say... um, you know, a lot of these things really come down to contracts and we will be the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to that. Um, We'd love to avoid that situation um, where, you know, a sequester is in place um, or significant cuts for for agencies are in place. Um, But the time will tell. And I hope to get more clarity out of either the House, the Senate or the White House as we move forward to that January 19th deadline for these agencies.
0: All right, Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Thanks as always, Stephanie. Thanks, Jared. And you can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still to come on Federal News Network, why was a Space Force Guardian aboard a Coast Guard Arctic Cutter? That's next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Back of the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu filling in for Tom. And talk about joint service. A member of the Space Force has become the first Guardian to receive a service medal from the Coast Guard. The Guardian spent three weeks aboard the Coast Guard cutter Healy in the Arctic. It's cold up there. For more on exactly what he was doing, that Guardian, Captain Henry Cho, talked with Tom Temin.
4: So I was there to monitor our experiment. So the Coast Guard offers slots on the Coast Guard cutter Healy. That's the ship's name to conduct experiments on board. And part of their primary mission is to do science along with diving and rescue qualifications. So they regularly host scientists parties. So we were just one of those parties. There were other researchers from NASA Naval Research Lab, also John Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. So our experiment was ionospheric sounder. So we made measurements off of the ionosphere, which is an atmosphere layer that contains ions and electrons we used in, active antenna to transmit up, and then another antenna to measure the return signal, and that measures the strength of the ionosphere. And the reason that we care about it is because the ionosphere has radio properties, meaning we can bounce radio signals off of it. So that's relevant for communications for both ground communications, so radio, but also space communications like SATCOM and GPS.
5: Right, so Space Force has dominion over the satellites, and you want to make sure the signals can get through all of the atmosphere, including the ionosphere then?
4: Right, so because the ionosphere has both the properties of electrons where you can bounce radio signals, it also introduces delay for like satellite communications. So we wanna account for that. And part of the research that we're doing is to make measurements of the ionosphere to know when it's stronger or when it's weaker.
5: And this can't be done via satellite, looking at it from the top instead of the bottom?
4: No, so we don't know about how strong the ionosphere is in the arctic region and that's one of the reasons why we were on board the cutter to make measurements of the ionosphere
5: and is the polar zone important
4: because of the way the satellites orbit well the polar region is important for a number of reasons one of it is like for polar orbits another reason is because of climate change and how the polar ice caps are melting there's increased activity up in the polar region. And so we're also interested in monitoring that region. Right, because Russia and everybody
5: else is prowling around there, too, and the United States needs to have a strategic presence and and a reliable one, I guess, too, in the Arctic. Fair to say?
4: Right. There is increased activity from both Russia and China, both military and commercial.
5: And for the Space Force, you specialize in atmospheric characterization generally, correct?
4: Right. So I'm assigned to uh, currently Air Force Base as a researcher, and a lot of the experiments that we run here is for atmospheric characterization. So we're looking at making measurements, not just the atmosphere, but also like the weather, both terrestrial and space weather. So how solar activity affects the atmosphere. So we're looking at both the atmosphere based on terrestrial and space weather.
5: We're speaking with Captain Henry Cho of the Space Force. And tell us about life on the Cutter in the Arctic. These are not tiny little boats. They're good-sized ships. What was life like aboard there?
4: This was a Coast Guard Cutter-Healy, which is, I believe, was one of their larger ships. But relatively to naval ships, I think it's relatively small. But life is generally very simple on board a Cutter. Uh, You sort of just wake up and so my duties were just to monitor and make sure our experiment was running okay. And that takes about really about 30 minutes out of my day. And so most of your time is really just keeping up with your health because the demands of going out into the Arctic, both living in an enclosed area and then living, working, sleeping in an enclosed area where both like mold and bacteria might work or the food progressively gets worse because all the fresh food runs out in the first half, and then the second half you're eating like processed and frozen foods. And then on top of that, some nights you don't get a good night's sleep because of heavy waters of the in the rocking of the boat. And also, there's a foghorn that goes off like every 30 seconds to alert other ships to make sure that there's no collisions.
5: Yeah, sounds like a total joy, aboard <laughs> the Coast Guard cutter. <laughs> but otherwise, the Coast Guard people were accommodating for you with a sister force, you might say.
4: Right. Yeah. They regularly do these science missions. So I think it can host up to 50 scientists. And so there are a lot of other government and commercial partners that they offer seats to. But yeah, they do this all the time. They understand like the demands of like being on board. So they certainly make time for people to get their sleep in. And yeah.
5: Is there a treadmill and a set of weight room and that kind of thing on there?
4: Yes, there is, I guess, two gyms on board. But Interesting thing about treadmill is on, like, the ship, essentially the floor is always moving because of the the heavy waters. And so, like, running on a treadmill is is very interesting because you have to also balance yourself with the rocking waters.
5: Yeah, I've done it. It's even worse trying to Uh, stand on a BOSU ball and uh, balance things when you're on a ship (laughs) that's rocking in the ocean. Well, tell us about your career, how you came to be an atmospheric characterization specialist. That's my word, not yours.
4: So... I commissioned into the air force in 2016 for officer training school and that was after college i did an undergrad in aerospace engineering and i was picked up as an engineer to be in the air force my first assignment was at the gps program office so that was overseeing production of gps satellites and then after that i was picked up for graduate school at the air force institute of technology and there i earned a engineering master's in electrical engineering And then that was also the assignment that I transferred into the Space Force just because I had a strong space background that it made sense to transfer over. And then now I'm stationed here at Air Force Research Lab, and I work as a researcher. My career field, they essentially grow either program managers or technical talent, and I tend to lean on the technical side of things. So that's how I ended up in this position.
5: And where will you have to go next on the surface to be able to uh, measure the atmosphere?
4: Well, right now we, uh, we're we debating on whether we do another experiment again on Coast Guard, Cutter, Healy, and we're not entirely sure like what different thing we would do because we don't want to collect the same data over again. So we're discussing whether we would do the same trip again and what we would do differently.
5: Sure. And this time you would bring a fresh crate of oranges all of your own, I suppose.
4: The voyage was about 40 days, and yeah, I I suppose, yeah, it it would last.
5: (laughs) (laughs) But you did get a medal from the Coast Guard or from the Space Force?
4: So it is a Coast Guard medal. I was looking for it in the shop here at Kirtland, and they don't offer it. So I'm glad to have the medal up in the Coast Guard base up in Alaska.
5: Yeah, well, maybe Mm -hmm. next time you'll uh, cruise the Caribbean.
4: Right, yeah. I mean, the cutter does go in different parts of the world. I'm not sure if they would actually go through the
0: Caribbean and maybe through the the Panama Canal. Well, that would be a trip too, I guess. Space Force Captain Henry Cho is a recipient of the Coast Guard Arctic Service Medal. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. And take the Federal Drive anywhere. Subscribe where you get your podcasts. Still ahead on Federal News Network, turning the White House order on artificial intelligence into action. That's next on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. Back on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom. The White House Executive Order on Artificial Intelligence gathered into one place all the concerns and cautions floating around for years. How to protect privacy and training data, how to avoid algorithmic bias— for more on how agencies can improve their AI game, Tom Temen spoke with the founder of the FAIR Institute, Nick Sanna. And you are into quantifying
5: cybersecurity risks and kind of putting numbers around some of these things. Tell us your take on what came out from the White House. Is there anything new there and what should happen next as a result? Yeah, actually, uh, we are quite surprised to see this coming so quickly.
6: We had the privilege of having uh, Chris Derusha, the federal government CISO, speak at the recent FAIR conference and tell us that it was upcoming. And I'm I'm personally very surprised by how quickly uh, the federal government has come out in in trying to provide guidance for the agencies in dealing with this problem. Usually you expect a lag from government on dealing with new trends. But as it comes, for AI, they've been very, very proactive, and I think more proactive than probably many commercial companies. For once, we see the government leading in trying to provide guidance and make sense of it in ways that
5: many private companies are still trying to figure out how to make sense of it. It read like a lot of great values that you want to bring to your AI activities, but it wasn't very prescriptive. And to enable, say, lack of bias in algorithms or protecting privacy with training data, whatever the case might be, a few other things, you have to do things. And so what should agencies, do you think, do differently now?
6: I actually commend the White House for not being too prescriptive to begin with. And I think what they try to establish is some very common sense practices that apply to any form of risk. And so say, if you want to manage this risk properly, They said, we need to um, have somebody focus on it. And so they're basically asking the agencies to designate chief AI officers who have the responsibility to advise, you know, leadership on AI, try to assess, you know, uh, the risk associated with AIs uh, and try to capitalize and benefit from it when it makes sense and manage this risk um, over time. So. Having somebody responsible for it is a great step. And in terms of governance, you know, if you don't have somebody responsible, you cannot ask for accountability and for this problem to be taken care of. The second thing is that they basically imply that treat this as like any form of risk. Identify how AI can be both a risk and an opportunity in terms of extending some of your services, increasing some productivity, both in terms of offering new services or improving your security practices, but also try to understand how the adversaries may use AI against you. And so identify those scenarios, try to size the problem and see what are the scenarios that matters in our agency and which may not be as applicable. And then what should we do about it? So I think that I love that because it points to a more risk-based approach than a set of prescriptive controls that may not apply to every agency. And so this forces the, every agency to say, what are the issues in AI that bubble up to the top that we need to tackle? And it may be slightly different from agency to agency.
5: That idea of people using AI against you, it reminds me of, as a kid, the first time you saw two facing mirrors and poked your head in between. There were an infinite number of reflections going on, you know, till the mirror disappeared. And could that happen with AI, that with say nefarious actors using ai against the ai you have deployed that they'll just simply get into a closed loop and cancel each other out altogether well it could be it's always a race you know to the top in terms of capability definitely we
6: see it on the adversarial side the threat actors are using ai to make it much easier to develop a slight variation of the latest ransomware attack to try to go detector to penetrate your account and etc And on the defensive side, we're trying to be uh, smart and trying to catch up. So it it is a warfare there where you need to level up with the adversaries or you're going to suffer more damage in in the short term. So I think that the fact that the government recognizing there's a bigger threat, they've probably seen an increase in adversaries using AI to uh, weaponize their tactics, to diversify their approaches. And the equivalent level of effort, if not great, it needs to happen on the defensive side. So we've seen this before with other forms of threat before. So again, I command the government saying, okay, in terms of threats, let's treat it like other threats, like other risks we've seen in the past and have an organized way of thinking about it versus trying to find technical silver bullets that may apply to one particular situation, but then don't solve the uh, problem.
5: We're speaking with Nick Sanna. He is founder of the FAIR Institute and president of Safe Security. And so really, you have to think of AI on two fronts. One, how do we deploy this in the best way possible for the best outcomes? But at the same time, you have to treat it as a cybersecurity threat on the incoming side. Absolutely. And so companies need to look at it in both ways. I think from
6: the uh, internal use side, you know, AI can give a lot of agencies... Uh, a lot of help in scaling some of the practices and and providing better service to the public and by being more responsive in providing, you know, answers that are very common to certain, kind of say, demands of the public. But it allows them to also maybe engineers and agencies to check their code and and be more proficient in QAing their code and testing things. It allows, again, many applications that can increase the productivity and offer new products and services. But again, there is, what are the risks that associated with those opportunities? Are we using public, can I say, uh, versions of you know large language models where you can compromise the data and, and make it available to other people inadvertently? Should we look at internal versions of AI tools that we actually teach the tool on data that is actually secure and private? And so these are some of the considerations for internal use of AI. And on the adversarial side, yes, you need to increase your threat intelligence capabilities to understand in what ways, you know, the adversaries are using AI to, against you and act accordingly. What are the remedies that are most effective in in blocking them? And so you need to look at it at both fronts. Absolutely. It's both offensive and defensive. And on top of defensive, it's, there's a lot of business application that can be very useful um, in terms of stretching the dollars, the taxpayer dollars, and for the benefit of the greater good.
5: And I'll ask you this because I've asked several other people this question. When you deploy a standard application and you have programmed logic into it, if you run that program 10 million times, you'll get the same outcome with the same inputs because that's how computers work. They're binary. But with AI and the constant learning process, then as it works over time, your system can get infected, let's say, with drift because of new data coming in, so therefore the privacy issues, the bias issues, whatever, or just the outcomes you want can keep changing. And so is it incumbent on agencies to add something to their way they approach application maintenance, which is usually a matter of fixing bugs and adding new features, but maybe turning it off, retraining it with the original data, and then relaunching it from time to time, or some related technique like that? Yeah, Tom,
6: I really love this question because in the past, cybersecurity has become a problem because cybersecurity came afterwards. The uh, the mandate for both agencies, even commercial companies, was to go out to market fast with new applications, with new services. Fast and cheap was the name of the game. Security came afterwards. And then, oops, like we have got a problem. We need to fix it. And suddenly, uh, uh, we have to play catch up. And I think in the case of AI, we observe that and say, we cannot do this. We cannot go fast and get in trouble really quickly. We need to incorporate risk assessments, but in the design of the solution, in the assessment of the solution in preemptive. And so we have the chance now, and I commend the government for doing this, to ask the agencies, especially uh, given this executive order, to put security in the equation alongside with uh, fast and cheap, not as an afterthought. Ever more important and AI makes that day even more important than ever before.
5: Right. So you should really avoid taking a comprehensive approach to trying to modernize everything and applying AI everywhere you can, but do it incrementally.
6: Incremental, But alongside, I think, you know, what we're seeing is more and more, I used to say, yeah, uh, DevOps um, was a big trend in, uh, in the industry. You need to start thinking about DevSecOps, where as you develop new solution, as you onboard new solution, there must be a mandatory risk assessment done upfront before you launch. And so... Uh, like in, in in if i use an analogy in the industry you know when you come up with new buildings you know you now need to do an environmental assessment same thing here we are entering an era where it's no longer okay to uh, have security as an afterthought you need to look at it upfront. and uh, in the case of ai there's so many implications you need to consider You need to do the assessment up front before you know uh, damage can be done and the the government's saying ring the bell and saying that's the nature of the problem you know issues will happen can happen you cannot pretend you didn't know the government is telling you you should look at it um, proactively and that's a very good thing
0: nick sanna is founder of the fair institute and president of safe security We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash and hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Jared Serbu, filling in for Tom Temen.